I'm Kate Cruikshank. I am a former chair of the bankruptcy section um, of the BBA uh, bankruptcy coach uh, committee. And I am subbing today for John Summerstein, who is the co-chair of the consumer committee. Unfortunately, John is under the weather today. So he asked me to sub in for him to introduce this program. So today's program is about selling property in bankruptcy proceedings. And you're gonna learn about the bankruptcy code's 363 sale process, the court's requirements under the local rules, um, some tips for good drafting of motions, notices, and orders, and importantly, what to prepare for in order to pass title standards after the sale has closed. Our panel today consists of first attorney Laurel Bretta, who has been practicing for 35 years representing clients in areas such as tax, bankruptcy, corporate and business formations, and litigation immigration, estate planning and probate, residential and commercial real estate ta uh, transactions as well. Uh, among other achievements, Attorney Bretta has won three first impression decisions in a client's favor. She, Attorney Bretta was the recipient of the John Carbone Esquire Pro Bono Award for Outstanding Community Service in 2013. She was the recipient of the Community Legal Aid National Pro Bono Award of 2020. And I know she's known to many of you for her skills in this in the bankruptcy area. Um, also joining Attorney Bretta is Attorney Michael Goldberg, who is a partner at Casor and Edwards LLP's in their financial restructuring and business bankruptcy practice. Uh, attorney Goldberg specializes in the area of business bankruptcy, financial restructuring, and business transactions, as well as commercial real estate transactions. In his 35 years of practice, Mr. Goldberg has represented a broad spectrum of clients in insolvency matters, including debtors, creditors, creditors committees, trustees, assignees, landlords, secured and unsecured creditors, and investors. Mr. Goldberg is a fellow in the American College of Bankruptcy and is rated as a leading business lawyer since 2006, as well as a super lawyer in Massachusetts. Um, uh, I'm going to start, we're going to take it away with um, Attorney Bretta starting today's proceedings, and I want to thank you both in advance for your, for your comments. Thank you, Kate. And Michael, thanks for all your help with this as well. Um, good afternoon. I'm Laurel Bretta, and uh, while I know many of you, there are some faces that are unknown to me, so there's not much to give you in terms of bio background, but I will tell you what I'll be presenting today. My portion of the presentation involves 363 motions and the Chapter 13 process. That, sorry, just trying to move to the next screen. Here we go. And um, I'm located in uh, Medford, Massachusetts. As Kate said, I have been practicing bankruptcy law for over 25 years and practicing lawyer for 35 years. I primarily represent debtors in the chapter seven, 11 and 13 areas. I, I don't do any work in chapter 12, but many of the issues that we're gonna to discuss today concerning 363 do involve uh, chapter 11 and chapter 13 debtors. For the trustee, chapter seven would be more applicable under this section. My job today is to explain the nuts and bolts of filing a 363 motion 
in a Chapter 13 proceeding, and that uh, statutory reference is 11 U.S.C. 363. To understand how 363 intersects with Chapter 13, it's important to know that only individuals can file a Chapter 13 proceeding. It allows individuals with regular income to repay most, if not all, of their debt in a three to five year period rather than liquidating their assets. But there's a very strict statutory scheme of priorities and claim allowances, and those are referred to uh, in uh, 11 U.S.C. 507 which is the priority uh, section and 11 U.S.C. 1301 at SQL. It's important to discuss the fact that when you're in a Chapter 13 and uh, individuals are trying to sell assets, they need to know ahead of time uh, before they file their Chapter 13 that if a sale of asset, and I mean any asset, is going to take place, they need to obtain bankruptcy court approval. That's a foreign notion to many individuals who have had uh, an easy time of just selling their assets, uh, whether it be a car, a home, uh, or maybe liquidating uh, a, a, an IRA or a 401k. Most people don't think in terms of needing approval from a court to do that. And so it's incumbent upon the practitioner or debtor's counsel to make sure that when they discuss filing a Chapter 13, that they tell these individuals that uh, anything that they sell, even exempt property, needs to be approved by the court. And that mechanism is through uh, Section 363. When is Section uh, 363 implicated in a, uh, in a bankruptcy filing, uh, such as a Chapter 13? Sometimes it's when the, uh, the debtor and debtor's counsel agree that uh, the debtor needs to sell a property in order to fund their Chapter 13 plan. Sometimes it's when there's a sale needed to reduce debt that the debtor is carrying every month uh, so that their plan is feasible, meaning that they have enough disposable income to make a plan payment work for them. And sometimes it's even to sell exempt property in order to prevent it from being foreclosed upon. We see that a lot of times when debtors start to fall behind post-petition in their plan payments and in their mortgage payments and they determine that it is better to sell the property than it is to lose it through foreclosure uh, through a, a motion for relief from automatic stay. So as debtors approach you and tell you that they're thinking about selling a piece of property, or as you're determining in a, uh, thinking ahead in terms of filing a plan, the first place to start is to know whether you actually are selling what is uh, determined to be property of the estate. And debtor's counsel needs to review 11 USA section 541, as well as section 1306, in order to determine whether the property you're selling is property of the estate. Now, those two sections work a little bit differently. Um, 1306 incorporates 541, but 541 is a very broad statute, and everything is property of the estate until it is not. And you can't mix the notion of property of the estate versus whether an asset is in fact exempt. So when somebody is talking about Section 541 or 1306, they're talking about property that belongs to the estate. When they're talking about exempt property, that's property that is not subject to levy or liquidation by a trustee. So once you've determined that 541 applies, um, and this is pre-petition determination, uh, you can then determine 
after you file your Chapter 13, whether 1306 also applies. 1306 is different from 541 because it incorporates all of the pre-petition assets that 541 covers, but it also includes any assets of similar ilk that the debtor acquires while they're in the Chapter 13 proceeding. The uh, drawback to Chapter 13 is that if a debtor obtains assets that uh, or appreciation uh, over and above an exempt amount of asset, that appreciation of those assets then become property of the estate, not by virtue of Section 541, but by virtue of thir- Section 1306. And I apologize, uh, there's a typo in the um, in the slide that I'm about to present to you, uh, but you should know that uh, 1306 is the operative section under Chapter 13. Once you have determined that you do have property of the estate, either under 541 or 1306, in order to dispose of that asset vis-a-vis a sale, you need to file a 363 motion. Now, 363 is a specific statutory um, scheme that requires you to provide certain information and also requires you to follow uh, the local rules of 6004-1 in terms of what the motion should look like, what should be contained in the motion, what documents should support the motion, what type of notice should be given to creditors and parties in interest. 6004, local rule 6004-1 requires that the motion have a, a clear description of the property being sold. So clear description does not just mean an address of the property. It should it should name the address of the property. If it's real property, uh, should have the, uh, the book and uh, page reference and the registry of deed reference. And it should also describe what type of property it is. Is it residential? Is it commercial? Is it a multifamily? Is it a single family? More information is better in the sense of disclosure because then it gives not only the court an opportunity to know what it is that you're trying to sell and the Chapter 13 trustee, but it also allows other potential bidders to know what what interest they're obtaining when they actually bid and possibly prevail on the 363 uh, bid. The second part uh, of your motion, which is important to have, is an assertion of value. And that doesn't just mean a guess at the value that you think that the property or the asset is worth. It also uh, should be supported by a third-party independent appraisal or a broker's price opinion. This is important for the court to know and creditors, as well as potential bidders, exactly what the value of the property is so that disclosure uh, requirements of 6004-1 are met. The third portion that should be uh, included in your motion is a disclosure of the debts to be paid. And this is a very important piece because when you go to sell a piece of property under 363, there's a specific statutory scheme that you must follow in order to make certain that the creditors are being paid by the priorities set forth in either their secured interest or under section 507. And I'll discuss why 507 is important in 363 motions a little bit later in my presentation. The court will want to know what expenses are you paying? Are you paying a real estate broker? Are you paying uh, real estate taxes? Are you paying water bills? Are you paying mortgages? Are you holding money back because you have a dispute with the first mortgagee? Are you paying taxes? And then most importantly, knowing what the tax impact of this sale is going to be. If you think about a sale as a way to 
either reduce debt or to bring money into the estate in order to preserve the feasibility of a plan. You also have to think about what administrative costs might arise as a result of selling the property. So for example, if you sell a piece of property in which there's very little equity in it, but there's a very large tax impact, you may be better off just letting the property go to foreclosure or a deed in lieu of foreclosure so that you don't create an administrative cost vis-a-vis a tax liability when you don't have enough money to pay uh, the um, secured debt and the administrative cost. Because if you don't make that analysis and know that before you file your 363 motion, you may uh, have the debtor incur administrative expense for an asset in which they clearly should have just uh, allowed to go uh, to liquidation through the foreclosure process uh, as opposed to uh, selling it. Notice is very important to parties in interest. Um, and again, notice as laid out in uh, the local rule 6004-1. I always look at the title on the property to see whether anybody has filed any claims, uh, whether that's a claim for adverse possession, whether that's a claim for encroaching property. But you're not just giving notice to the creditors, you're giving notice to the people who filed proofs of claim, you're giving notice to the US trustee, the chapter 13 trustee, secured creditors, even creditors that you don't clearly believe are secured, but uh, may have an impact on whether notice is being properly provided. I had a case uh, recently in which there was a lien against an estate um, holder's property, a probate estate holder's property, It was not a creditor of my debtor who held title to the property when they took it by transfer from the probate court, but there was a lien on the property, which had no priority, but certainly uh, the creditor should be notified of the sale because their lien is being affected by the sale. Uh, Whether or not they're being paid is not the issue. It's whether they're being affected by the sale. When you prepare that motion, please make sure that you attach any signed purchase and sales agreement. And I believe Michael will be talking about that a little bit later. The court will not act on a motion to sell under 363 unless there is a fully executed uh, purchase and sale agreement because the court uh, does not want the terms of the sale not to be before the court and all of the creditors and parties in interest. It's important to know that your failure to follow the process and the notice requirements, even if the sale motion is allowed, may affect the title to the property. And you may have to come back and file motions in order to alter a judgment and go through the whole motion and notice process again. So you want to be very, very careful when you're filing the motions. Now, not all creditors have to be noticed on the motion, but they certainly have to be noticed on the notice that is provided by the court. And I've put samples of those documents in the presentation uh, documents that I provided uh, through the the agencies that you can look at those and, and use what you'd like in them. But it's very, very important that uh, if somebody asks you for a copy of the purchase and sale agreement that you provide it or a copy of the motion. You're doing this for two reasons. One is to satisfy the local rules of notice and 363 uh, and to give good title, but you're also doing it too because you want to make sure that you get as many bidders into the process as you can. Um, Before beginning that analysis under 363, again, make sure you have property of the estate and make sure that you have followed your compliance rules uh, very carefully. When you start to think about selling a property, first thing you should do, 
obtain an appraisal or evaluation of the asset that you're selling. Second thing is, if real estate is involved, make sure that you do a title search so that you know who the parties in interest and whether there are any adverse claims against the property. These creditors, as, long, as well as those who file proofs of claim, have an interest in this property, have an interest in the proceeds until somebody tells you they don't. Um, any excess proceeds that come from the sale of property, if that excess proceeds ex uh, exceed the exempt amounts, belongs to the trustee. And I'll explain that uh, the Barboza case a little bit later. So if you're getting ready to sell a piece of property and the debtor tells you, oh, great, I'm going to have $400,000 in order to start my life again, that may not always be true. So it's important for debtor's counsel to tell the debtor, this is the statutory scheme we have to follow. Once we get that 363 motion allowed, these are the people that we are going to pay. And any excess proceeds over the exempt amount belongs to the Chapter 13 trustee gets paid over the Chapter 13 trustee to be distributed as an additional dividend to the um, generally the general unsecured creditors. One thing I always do before I file a 363 motion is I check to make sure the asset I'm selling is on my Schedule AB. Um, it's a very easy mistake to make, and it's very embarrassing to show up at a hearing uh, asking the court to sell an asset that you didn't disclose on the schedules through inadvertence or mistake. The second is to check your Schedule C to make sure that you've taken the maximum exemption amount in all of the assets that you're holding in the debtor's estate, but as importantly, the asset that you're selling. Because if you don't take the exemption or declare the exemption, then the proceeds calculation that go to the creditors may be different than it would be if you use the maximum exemptions. Once uh, you have determined that everybody's been uh, notified, make sure you check the claims register again so for notice and make sure you check the claims register for any mortgage that may have been assigned during the course of the bankruptcy to make sure you're giving notice to the proper note holders and mortgages, mortgages on the property. Make sure that you check your priorities. It's very easy to miss that uh, there's an IRS lien on the property. It's on, it's you're paying it through the plan, but if they're a secured creditor, they get paid uh, from the proceeds before anybody else does, uh, even if you're paying it through the plan. And after you get your 363 motion allowed, if uh, the sale proceeds as you wish it to proceed and everything works out smoothly, the order is uh, is issued and you record the order, you may have to amend your plan and your schedules I and J because if it's an income producing asset, obviously your income and expenses have changed. And uh, if it's um, an asset that provided additional distribution to creditors, you would want that disclosed on the plan. As well, if you're paying off a mortgage that was under the cure and maintain provisions of chapter 13, you don't wanna continue to have the trustee confused in paying that mortgage in accordance with a confirmed plan that's paying cure and maintain when that plan when that mortgagee has actually been paid through the plan. I'm sorry, through the closing. As I stated earlier, 6004-1 um, is specific to chapter 13s. It tells you what the requirements are for the motion. It tells you what to incorporate in your motion. If there are breakup fees or protections built in to uh, protect the original purchaser, which I believe Michael is speaking about, um, you need to have that disclosed. The court wants to know where every penny is going. And if you hired a broker, make sure 
that the broker um, fee uh, application uh, is being filed so that they can be paid at closing. And the court wants to know why you're doing a private sale versus a public sale of the property. One uh, issue that I wanted to talk about, which is a little more esoteric than the nuts and bolts that I've been presenting earlier, is uh, the First Circuit uh, case in Ray Barboza. And again, the typo appears at uh, the third line is 1308, should be 1306. In Barboza, there was a Chapter 13 uh, debtor who sold a piece of property and there was excess proceeds. The trustee demanded that the uh, creditor, that the debtor, file an amended plan to increase the dividend to the general unsecured creditors. In this case, the con the plan had gone to confirmation. It was a pre-petition debt with post-petition appreciation, and there was a confirmation order that did not include the post-petition appreciation uh, as being outside the um, property of the estate. And the case went all the way up to the First Circuit, and the First Circuit in analyzing Section 1327B, the vesting um, schedule, the vesting statute in Chapter 13 and 1306 said that they can read those statutory references as being consistent. If you recall, 1306 was the statute that said that uh, any property that's obtained post-petition uh, is most likely property of the estate in addition to the property uh, contained in 541. But in 1327B, the provision states that, that the property, uh, that upon confirmation of a plan, that the property that the debtor owns vests in the debtor. And so the debtor was arguing that that property was in fact their property and therefore the proceeds of the property was theirs because the, of the vesting statute. The court denied, uh, or the court uh, basically rejected the debtor's argument and said, no, in reading both of those statutes together, post-petition appreciation of pre-petition assets, even after confirmation, belongs to the creditors. And if the debtor wants to stay in Chapter 13, they have to turn those proceeds over. That case has not been challenged beyond the First Circuit. There is a split in authority throughout the rest of the country, uh, but that is our First Circuit law. So when you're selling property, and you have made certain that you've disclosed it on Schedule A and B, you've taken the proper exemption and the maximum exemption that the debtor is permitted, and you still have excess proceeds in that property after paying all of the secured debt, the costs of the sale, and the priority claims that are secured claims, as well as the administrative expenses. If there's excess proceeds, the, the excess proceeds belong in the plan and you'll have to amend your plan. And if you read paragraph five of every confirmation order that is submitted in draft and issued by the court, uh, those orders include a paragraph that says, unless the court orders otherwise, all property of this, this the estate as defined in 11 USC sections 541 and 1306, including to not limited any appreciation in the value of real property, property owned by the debtors, as of the commencement of the case, shall remain property of the estate during the term of the plan and shall vest in the debtors that set forth in section nine of the summary. And that section nine of the summary goes on to talk about when the vesting is absolute in the proceeds, the appreciation or the uh, increased proceeds. So Barboza became law and then the First Circuit uh, bankruptcy courts 
have all adopted a uh, an order confirming plans that include post-petition appreciation of pre-petition debt, even if the case has gone to confirmation. Very important to keep track of that. Um, I'm not sure that the answer is exactly correct. Um, there are plenty of cases that go the other way uh, throughout the country. And uh, I think that um, 1327B is pretty clear that vesting means vesting, and that includes property and appreciation, but that is not the law in Massachusetts. Um, I gave you uh, in this slide alternatives to um, sale under section 363. Uh, you can borrow money to pay off your plan. If your plan is 36 months, uh, if it's in duration or it's a 100% plan, you can borrow money to pay off your plan. Once the plan is paid off and the plan was confirmed, obviously, then there is no further jurisdiction for the uh, court to ask for any post-petition appreciation from pre-petition debt under 13, pre-petition assets under 1306. You can try to refinance the debt um, and refinance it with either another uh, co-borrower with you, uh, which may resolve the issue of having to sell the property at all and avoid 363 sales. Or you can go to the creditor and ask for a loan modification. Uh, loan modification may solve the feasibility issue uh, in terms of what is owed and being paid through the cure and maintain provisions of Chapter 13 plans. It also may avoid you having to uh, file a 363 motion to sell the asset. So there are three possibilities and maybe more uh, if you don't want to file the 363 motion, either because you don't want to lose the property or because there's so much uh, post-petition appreciation that um, it would be uh, unfeasible for the debtor to, to pay that to their creditors. Uh, with that being said, I don't know if there are any questions, and I'm sorry if it seemed like I sped through that a little bit, but there was a lot of product uh, to get through. And uh, I can't impress upon you how important it is that you also prepare a proposed order for the court. And that's in the materials I provided as well. So that when that proposed order is sent over to the title company ahead of your uh, appearing on the 363 motion, that uh, the order is in recordable form and it satisfies the title company so that you don't have to come back and ask the court to amend the order in order to clear title. Thank you very much for attending today. I, I hope that was helpful. Uh, the materials are available uh, through uh, NOAA, I believe, and um, the slides have also been sent out to all of the participants. And with that, if there are any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Otherwise, I'll uh, turn this over to my colleague, Michael Goldberg, and I see no questions. So, Michael, if they come up again, I'm, I'm, I, I can jump in, but uh, would you like to start in the next uh, session? Thank you, Laurel. Um, I now know more about Chapter 13 than I knew before, although I'm not sure I'm qualified to practice in the area like probably most of the participants in this seminar. But uh, in any event, I'm, uh, it was a very interesting presentation, and thank you. Um, I'm here to talk about uh, really two areas uh, involving sales of real estate and bankruptcy. One is sales free and clear under Section 363F, uh, about which I've had a fair amount of experience, and then sales of properties owned uh, by co-tenants uh, under Section 363H. Um, and in the second uh, area, I promised John I would cover this um, area, 
not because I'm a, a known expert in uh, representing trustees and selling uh, jointly owned property, but um, because it's a topic of interest and hopefully I'll do justice to it um, for all those uh, on the line who practice in that area. So if we can skip over to the next slide. Um, so this is me. Uh, I've been representing, I've been handling bankruptcy matters and particularly bankruptcy matters in the real estate uh, area for some 35 years, uh, which means uh, congratulations to all the participants. You've come to the old folks panel. Um, uh, so uh, Laurel, next slide. Uh, in considering the sale of uh, real property uh, under Section 363F, uh, free and clear of liens, claims, and interests, uh, I think there are two broad uh, topics that we need to talk about. First, what are we selling free and clear of? And second, what are the requirements under the statute that, uh, that dictate when you can sell property free and clear of liens and interests? So on this slide, I, I try to lay out what you're selling free and clear of. Liens are what you would expect. Mortgages, uh, judgments, attachments, real estate taxes, and tax liens generally. Um, interests are a variety of the kinds of interests you would see in uh, the ownership of real estate. Real estate can be subject to easements. It can be subject to restrictive covenants. Uh, there can be encroachments and adver adverse possession interests, there can be wetlands orders and there can be leases. Uh, some cases you'll want to transfer, there's no issue transferring property while it remains subject to some of these interests. In other cases, you, you'll want to get rid of these uh, problems and the bankruptcy uh, code can sometimes be helpful. Um, the last category are claims and, and here, um, if you're not selling an operating business, this is frankly of less interest. Um, claims that may be at issue are claims for unpaid vendors, uh, providing services to, to the property, claims for last month's rent and security deposits um, in both residential and commercial settings. Um, uh, frankly, if the property is being conveyed subject to real estate, real estate leases, uh, the buyer is almost always going to require that it receive the security deposit or receive a credit against the purchase price if the security deposit has been held, hasn't been held in escrow. In the case of residential real estate, while LMRs don't need to be held in escrow, security deposits do. And so in a typical sale where leases are traveling along uh, with the property, uh, those security deposits will be transferred to the buyer. Next slide. So those are the liens and interests that we're concerned about. This slide uh, talks uh, addresses the, the, the five prongs of Section 363F. So as many of you, I'm sure, know, um, there are five prongs to 363F, F, and at least one of those prongs has to be satisfied in order for a sale of a particular interest uh, to be free and clear, uh, sale of a property to be free and clear of a particular interest. Uh, so prong number one is 363F1, uh, which provides that applicable non-bankruptcy law permits the sale of such property 
free and clear of the interest. Commonly, that is uh, um, relied on where uh, a foreclosure sale, it, a hypothetical foreclosure sale would permit the interest to be extinguished. Uh, we'll get, we'll double back to that in a bit. F2 is consent. F3 uh, occurs where the interest is a lien and the sale of the property, it, the purchase price of the property is greater than the aggregate value of all liens on the property. Um, you may know that there's some dispute about whether uh, it, whether the value of all liens on the property is subject to the value of the property. In this district, uh, it is not. Um, it is the face amount of the debt secured by the liens. And so if the face amount of any particular lien exceeds the value of the property and that secured creditor doesn't consent to the sale, then the sale will not be free and clear of that creditor's lien. Section 363 F4, the interest is subject to a bona fide dispute. And section 363 F5 uh, it, uh, occurs when the entity holding the interest could be compelled in a legal or equitable proceeding to accept the satisfaction of the interest. The way in which this provision is invoked uh, is in the, even in the context of a chapter seven case, if it can be shown that a chapter 11 plan of reorganization could pay off and cram down uh, the value of that interest, then uh, 363 F5, can sometimes allow you to sell free and clear of the interest in question. Next slide. So I, I think the topic of consent is an interesting one um, and really uh, often isn't focused on enough in the context of real property sales. So the first and most important principle in this area is that consent can be expressed or implied. So that, what does that mean? It means what it says, which is basically, if you serve notice on the holder of an interest, whether it's a lien or a property interest, and that party doesn't object to the sale, the proposed sale, then the party is deemed to have consented to the sale. So as you can imagine, the effectiveness of, of consent or deemed consent uh, as a prong to utilize under 363 F5 really will depend on the scope of notice. And so uh, one should consider giving notice to the various parties that I've listed in, uh, in the bullet points, easement holders, owners of encroachments shown on a plot plan or survey, uh, abutters, uh, and tenants. Uh, I ask a question uh, in the middle of, the, of, the, of this list, which is what if the debtor's property encroaches or improvements encroaches on another person's property, can you essentially accomplish adverse possession by giving your abutter notice of the sale? And, and, and I don't know what the answer to that question is, but it might be an interesting way to firm up title where you have otherwise, or firm up uh, the properties, the rights of the property holder where there's uh, an issue. So, um, Moving to the next slide, um, I mentioned in the prior slide that sometimes selling a property free and clear of a tenant's interest is the key to a sale. 
When, when will that occur? Probably not in multifamily residential property, but it could occur in some residential property where there's a lease that's substantially under market. It could certainly also occur in the case of a commercial property lease uh, or a commercial property sale where the property is leased uh, under market to one or more tenants. So what you would do under those circumstances uh, essentially is give notice to all the tenants, which you might do anyway, uh, of the pending sale. Uh, if those tenants don't object to the sale, then one could argue that those uh, that the property is being sold free and clear of the rights of those tenants. That's uh, sparked some controversy among the circuits, and I'll get to those issues in a moment. Um, but there are a couple of prongs that can be used in addition to deemed consent, even if the tenant objects. What if the tenant objects uh, and uh, there is a senior mortgage on the property? Under those circumstances, uh, it could be argued that the rights of the tenant can be extinguished under section 363F1, because if the senior mortgagee foreclosed on its mortgage, it might well wipe out the, the rights of the tenant if the lease is junior to the mortgagee. If the lease precedes the mortgage, that's a more complicated analysis. But even here, where the, where the lease is due, is, is, Put, uh, is entered into after the mortgage, you have to be careful in trying to utilize this, uh, th this method for getting rid of a lease because of the existence in the lease or in a separate document, such as a subordination, non-disturbance, uh, and uh, a tournament agreement that may bind that mortgagee to recognize the rights of the tenant upon the conclusion of the foreclosure. Under those circumstances, you, the, the tenant would argue, you cannot, uh, you, you can't extinguish my tenants, my occupancy rights, because the mortgagee wouldn't be able to even in the foreclosure. Um, another prong under which you might try to extinguish the rights of a tenant uh, is section 363 F5. Um, I would simply point out that the one judge in this district who has had an opportunity to look at that issue has said, uh, has, has issued a resounding no in the In Ray Haskell case. Judge Feeney uh, concluded that uh, you couldn't use Section 363F to override the rights of a tenant uh, that I'm going to talk about in a moment. Uh, and so she did not approve the use of C Section 363 F5 to extinguish a lease. So um, for those of you who aren't aware, there is a split in the circuits uh, about this issue. The split in the circuits in, uh, involves the interaction between section 363 F and section 365 H of the bankruptcy code. Section 365 H gives a non-debtor tenant that has taken possession of, of its occupancy rights under a lease 
to remain in possession even if the debtor rejects the lease. And so the courts have, or, and tenants have asked the question, how can you possibly extinguish my rights under Section 365H with a sale under Section 363F? Uh, and uh, Judge Feeney in Haskell said, you can't. Uh, but two circuit courts have more or have recently said you could. Both the Seventh Circuit in Precision Industries, which is cited here, as well as the Ninth Circuit uh, in, um, Sp in the Spanish Peaks decision, have concluded that uh, a sale under Section 363F, if, it, if notice is given to the tenants and it precedes a motion to reject is effective to extinguish a tenant's rights to remain in possession under 365H. So what's the key to those, um, to those decisions? The key to those decisions uh, is that um, the court initially found a reason uh, to, uh, one of the, I should say, a prong under section 363F into which gave them the right to extinguish the lease, right? So for example, in the Precision Industries case, uh, the tenant had failed to object to the sale. Tenants failing to object to the sale are deemed to have consented to it. So that tenant, by not objecting to the sale, waived its right thereafter to object and thereafter to complain under Section 365 of its loss of Section 365H. Similarly, uh, uh, in Spanish Peaks, uh, the, there was a finding uh, that at least one of the prongs of Section 363F had been satisfied, although the, the, the decision isn't clear as to which of those prongs applied. So this shows you the importance of giving notice to tenants, uh, but it also shows you to the if you represent a tenant occupying property that's being sold in a bankruptcy of objecting, because if you don't object, you will be deemed to have consented. If you do object, it may be that you have all the leverage in the world because uh, essentially there may not be another prong available to allow the sale of that property free and clear of your client's interest. I should add here that, uh, as I'm sure you all know, Section 363E permits a sale of property uh, or condi uh, conditions a sale of property on the provision of adequate protection. Um, adequate protection can't be used to satisfy one of the prongs of Section 363F but if even if one of those prongs is satisfied, I believe a tenant can protect its interest by demanding adequate protection in connection with the sale. If the debtor can't provide it, then uh, it's another basis for the court to decline to approve the sale. Um, alternatively, uh, the debtor may make an argument that you can monetize the loss to the tenant of having to relocate and possibly pay a higher rent. Uh, and so um, it, it's, it's an, it, again, all of the gateway to all of this is timely objections to sale if you represent the tenant. 
Um, so let's uh, move on to the next slide, um, which uh, deals with, uh, so having kind of outlined the interests and liens and the prongs and focused a little bit on the consent issue, uh, that what I thought would be the next topic to talk about is how do you prepare for the sale? And Laurel covered uh, a number of these things uh, in her presentation. But certainly, you need to get a title report. Um, uh, you, it, it will tell you upon whom you need to give notice, and there could be problematic easements on title, uh, and uh, or just old matters that need to be cleared up. Uh, it wouldn't hurt to get a survey or a plot plan to discover whether there are any encroachments. Certainly ask your client if you represent the debtor for any physical condition reports or environmental reports in the, in the file, because frankly, any buyer is going to want that information in connection with its due diligence investigations. A, a last piece that you might consider uh, is uh, uh, going to the records of the, of, the, of the assessor's office in the city or town where the property is located, because that'll give you some information on uh, who the abutters are, at least according to the records of the tax office. Uh, it's easier than doing a title search on all the abutting properties. Uh, and I think to the extent that there are encroachment issues or adverse possession issues, uh, it would be helpful information. Um, one thing I didn't put on, on, on this uh, list uh, and something you ought to consider is go out and take a look at the property. Now, it's not always possible to do that, and it may not even be practical if you're selling a house. Um, but uh, there are many instances where larger parcels of property were subject to, say, adverse possession claims of abutters that only become apparent if you see the property. Um, I've had a recent case a few years ago where uh, the, the property at issue uh, had on one of one side of the property uh, a conservation easement, a wooded area, on the other side of which were houses where the homeowners had landscaped their properties into the uh, the landscape in, into the wooded buffer, uh, and we needed to get rid of those landscaped areas to satisfy the buyer's requirements. That was not a bankruptcy sale, but in a, if I had the benefit of a bankruptcy. I would have certainly put all of those abutting homeowners on notice. And to the extent they didn't object, we could have resolved the issues. So in preparing the motion, I, I've also put a, mo a form of motion in PNS agreement uh, in the materials. Um, and Laurel has done, has done that as well. They're both good models. Um, you know, the, the, the basics, identify in your motion the terms of the sale. Identify the holders of interest in the property. You should describe the marketing process, right? Um, presumably, if you're selling real property, you will have retained a broker. Not only should you explain who the broker is, but it wouldn't be a bad idea uh, to explain what the broker did to try to market the property. The motion should lay out your argument for selling, selling the property free and clear of liens and interests. You should identify the, each of the interests involved 
and the prong of the statute that allows you to sell free and clear of those liens. And then finally, uh, and again, this harkens back to Laurel's presentation, um, you need to check local rule 6004-1. It tells you everything you need to include in a sale motion. Uh, and it will be a helpful reminder and frankly, help you avoid inadvertent omissions from your filing. Next slide. So rather than talk about the motion, I, I thought uh, I would talk a little bit about uh, the purchase and sale agreement itself. Um, in, in many cases, the purchase and sale agreement is a standard document, but frankly, um, there are provisions that require some attention and, and could use some negotiation from case to case. So um, I, I wanted to highlight for you some of the questions that you might think about. For example, um, the size of the transaction might uh, dictate a more complex document. I'm sure you're all familiar with the Greater Boston Real Estate Board form of purchase and sale agreement, which is a very nice but limited down the middle of the road form. Often uh, for residential real estate sales or small commercial sales, it's a perfectly fine place to start. Uh, you may need to add riders. Uh, you'll see a rider attached to the purchase and sale agreement that I've attached to the motion uh, that I put in the materials. Um, but when you think about the complexity of the agreement and the form to start with, um, uh, a, a larger, particularly larger commercial transaction may require representations and warranties. Now, you might ask the question, why is a debtor giving representation and reps and warranties in a real estate deal that's as is, whereas? And the answer is, well, not because there's any continuing indemnities or liabilities. It's because um, they establish closing conditions uh, that, that the debtor has to satisfy even if it has an order authorizing the sale. Uh, if the, a, a more complex agreement may include operating uh, covenants, dealing with how the property is gonna be managed between purchase and sale and closing. If the real estate includes an operating business, there can be provisions dealing with employees, permits, governmental improvements, uh, approvals, I should say, handling of leases, et cetera. Um, and again, leases, going back to the one critical area of concern, if you're dealing with a multi-tenant property, um, the, the, a more complex agreement will deal with the debtor's right to enter into what new leases or terminate existing leases. So again, the document you start with will depend on the complexity of the transaction. Um, next slide. Um, uh, I uh, a couple of other points about this, the standard form is that it doesn't the standard form doesn't contain a contingency for bankruptcy court approval, and uh, that contingency should not be included not only in the purchase and sale agreement, but uh, in the offer form if the broker is having uh, uh, buyers sign offers. Uh, the standard form doesn't create doesn't have an as is where is clause, and that should also be included. Uh, another consideration in uh, these transactions is 
a due diligence period. How long will the per potential purchasers be permitted to conduct due diligence? Will that be provided for in the purchase and sale agreement? And another important question is, will other potential bidders be permitted to conduct their own diligence? I know that uh, most of us don't want to deal with due diligence once you've signed a purchase and sale agreement and filed it with the court. Um, but uh, depending again on the nature of the property and the complexity of the transaction, you may need to give competing bidders at least a little bit of time and certainly access to the same level of diligence that your stalking horse had access to. So then there's a question about how much due diligence will be permitted. And here, I think the most important point is invasive environmental testing. Um, buyers outside of the context of bankruptcy avoid that at all possible costs. Uh, and unless you're dealing with property where there's some reason to be concerned about environmental issues, and you're representing the debtor, I'd avoid it as well. Uh, it, 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 it's quite dangerous in that once, if something is found that was unknown previously, um, it has to be reported to the regulatory authorities. If the buyer walks away, uh, the debtor all of a sudden has an environmental release and a possible remediation obligation um, that, that simply is a bigger problem uh, than, than you would have if you wanted to simply abandon the property. So again, another consideration in due diligence. Um, next slide. I've, I've included on this slide for your um, uh, reading pleasure and potential use, an example of an as is, whereas clause that I've used as a rider to the purchase and sale agreement. Um, and uh, also the bankruptcy court approval language uh, that I've used in a, uh, as a rider to the standard form purchase and sale agreement. And you can see in the uh, appro approval provision in particular um, that it specifically uh, uh, puts the buyer on notice that the, um, that the debtor or the trustee will be seeking uh, the submission of higher and better offers. Uh, in connection with the sale. And so that doesn't become a ground for terminating the purchase and sale agreement. Uh, so it's important, I think, to include that in the bankruptcy court approval. Next, a couple of other um, um, things to note in the purchase and sale agreement document. Um, this, is, uh, this is an excerpt from paragraph four of the Greater Boston Real Estate Board form of purchase and sale agreement. And it tells you the quality of title that has to be delivered at closing. No surprise in the first paragraph. You have to convey good and clear record and marketable title free from encumbrances. That's the standard in Massachusetts. Uh, but what does that mean uh, is really articulated in the following five, uh, five prongs um, you don't, you, you're, so long as you don't give your buyer uh, a, a permitting or zoning condition, then you don't have to deal with problems relating to zoning laws. It's the buyer's problem to satisfy itself prior to signing the purchase and sale agreement that there's not a zoning issue uh, or a building code issue. And if that problem exists, the buyer doesn't have it out. Um, the later on, um, 
talk about easements. So you can convey subject to easements, restrictions, and reservations of record um, as long as they don't prohibit or material inter materially interfere with the current use of the premises. So the buyer gets a survey and discovers that there's a drainage easement under the building that they're buying, they can walk away. But if the drainage easement goes along the border of the property that's not used for any purpose, uh, then no, they can't walk away. Uh, so again, it's important to know what you're agreeing to and what you're not agreeing to in that purchase and sale agreement that you attach to the motion to sell. Next slide. So um, this is later on in the same standard form of agreement. <clears throat> and it, it's kind of a, a weird uh, 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 in, inherent inconsistency in the deal. First of all, if you are going to sell a property that has tenants, look at, if you look at the first highlighted provision, make sure to take it out. Um, if you just simply sign a standard foreign purchase and sale agreement and you weren't agreeing to deliver the property free of tenants, you've got a, you've got a problem at closing. Um, the second provision, uh, the, the paragraph B, I would also take out because we've already said in the in paragraph four that you don't that you can deliver property as long as there's good title and it's the buyer's problem to satisfy itself on zoning laws. Here, the, the, the presumption is reversed and it becomes the seller's problem. If you're representing the seller, take it out. If you're representing the buyer, insist that it stay in. Um, uh, next slide, please. So the next two slides, I'm not gonna cover in any detail. Um, this is a provision from a rider that's a really buyer-friendly provision dealing with the condition, more detailed discussion of the condition of the property at closing. Um, the first paragraph A deals with encroachments. The standard form agreement doesn't deal with encroachments. This provision says that uh, if there's uh, if there are encroachments or problems with access or egress, the buyer can walk away. So if you're a buyer, you want this provision. If you're a seller, you really don't. Paragraph B is encroachments over abutting properties. Um, paragraph D is access to a public way. Again, you need to be sure that you can either provide these requirements if you're the seller or you, not, you need not to have these requirements in the asset purchase agreement or the, the purchase and sale agreement. Next slide, Laurel. Um, adequacy of utilities uh, is another issue that a buyer will want to be satisfied on. And again, it's a closing condition that could catch you up if there's an issue. Certificates of compliance for orders of condition. This is not a, a seminar on wetlands topics. Um, but I will say that um, uh, there's been, I've had a number of, of uh, transactions, both in and out of bankruptcy, where the record reflects orders of conditions for wetlands work, where a certificate of compliance is not on record. So what does that mean? Uh, under When you obtain an order of conditions to do wetlands work on a property, that order, together with the package that you submitted to the Conservation Commission, uh, 
puts says what work is permitted and it details how the work should be accomplished. Once the wetlands work is done, and when I say wetlands work, I mean work that you're permitted to do within a wetlands buffer zone. So if your property has is in a wetland buffer zone, no work can be done without obtaining an order of condition. Orders of condition require that when the work is done, you go back to the Conservation Commission and get a certificate of compliance. And that certificate of compliance should also be recorded. What's, what's the consequence of a failure to do so? The buyer never knows whether the wetlands work has been, a, has been a, a completed in accordance with the order and at any time in the future can be required to, fit, to, to complete work that hasn't been completed in accordance with the order. And whether or not that, that order can be extinguished by a self-free and clear is something I simply wouldn't rely on. Uh, if I'm a buyer's counsel, I'm telling a trustee or debtor, if there's not a certificate of compliance to go get one, and if it's important to me, I put it in the purchase and sale agreement. So those are, yeah, review those provisions at your uh, leisure if you're in, uh, interested and uh, use the provision or not use the provision depending on who you represent in uh, the transaction. So one final note uh, on the next slide is the real estate auction. Um, uh, I've, I've, I've heard the late Judge Queenan muse in a uh, uh, continuing education se uh, session on whether he thought a sealed bid auction or an open voice auction was a better way to sell property. Um, I think there are pros and cons to each. Um, I think uh, part of the pros and cons may, among other things, depend on how many bidders that you have. Um, whether you have a sense uh, that, uh, a, that, that bidders are keeping some money in their pockets, waiting to see whether or not they're going to be bid up. Um, and uh, I will say that in a recent case that I've had uh, involving a senior living community in uh, the Westfield, Massachusetts area, actually in Southwick, Massachusetts, we had an, a, an open voice auction that was conducted over Zoom. It was in the middle of COVID, where we had an open voice auction that started with a stocking horse bid of $9 million and ended with a final offer. We had four bidders and a final approved offer of $19.2 million. So certainly based on my experience in that case, I'm a big fan of open voice auctions, but it's not always suitable. And judges, some judges will let you do it in, uh, or, or not. Some judges will uh, do it in court. Uh, you want a, an auction in court, and it really depends. And frankly, for uh, you know a, a single residential property, it, it may it, it may the best may well be just simply to keep it simple and have sealed bids. But again, my experience is that open voice auctions can be very powerful ways if you're representing the debtor or a trustee to increase the purchase price. Um, do you have break, uh, bid protections in your deal? Again, I think it's a, it's, it's a function of transaction size and, and the nature of the, the type of transaction. So um, if, if you do use a breakup fee, uh, some rules of the road are set out below. 
Uh, it can be, uh, it's often expressed as a percentage of the sale price, but it can also be uh, based on the debtor or rather the stocking horses out of pocket expenses. Uh, if it's a percentage, I think typically three to 5% is kind of the going rate. Uh, if it's an out-of-pocket expense, an expense reimbursement, uh, uh, be sure to consider making it subject to a cap. Um, uh, bidding protections can include uh, minimum overbids uh, and subsequent bid thresholds. How much is the first overbid going to have to exceed the, the, the stocking horse bid by? And then how large will the subsequent increments be? Uh, and of course, um, what you're going to want to uh, extract from a stalking horse if they do negotiate for a breakup fee uh, is access to that stalking horse's due diligence. So those are some, some thoughts about um, breakup fees uh, in uh, Massachusetts real estate transactions. Next slide. Um, turning to my next topic, uh, which I'll try to do in uh, a shorter period of time. Uh, sales of properties owned by joint tenants, tenants in common are tenants by the entirety. So again, apologies to those of you who practice in this area, but there are four, um, uh, four different requirements that have to be satisfied in order for a trustee to sell property where a, a non-debtor co-owner as one of these interests. Uh, partition has to be impracticable. Sale of the estate's interest would generate a greater return uh, uh, if the entire property is sold than if just the interest is sold. The benefit of the sale outweighs the detriment to co-owners. And the fourth and easiest requirement to satisfy, the property is not used in the production, transmission, or distribution for sale of electric energy or natural or synthetic gas or for heat, light, or power. That I've not yet seen a case that involved that issue. Next slide. So um, the, um, the first prong requires that sale of that partition of the property be impractical. Um, Judge Gabriel, many years ago, um, issued a decision called the Adario, in which he said a sale of a single, uh, if the property is a single family residence, sale, uh, partition is always going to be impractical. Um, second, uh, Massachusetts law, uh, as um, Judge uh, Bailey told us in the Desmond v. Francis case, uh, is uh, impractical if the property is owned by husband and wife as tenants by the entirety because partition is not available under the statute in that circumstance. Uh, another uh, case that holds partition is impractical is where the property is subject to, to a mortgage that's greater in amount than the value of the property. Uh, and um, one other note, some have tried to get around the partition uh, issue, the impracticality of partition by arguing that condominium conversion is the equivalent of partition, um, that won't work. Um, 
in uh, the Desmond v. Francis case, which cited an earlier case of Collins v. Duda, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, condominium conversion uh, it doesn't isn't isn't a practical alternative that the courts will permit. Um, so that's the impracticality prong. The uh, the uh, the second prong, section three sixty. 3H2 uh, is also very easy to satisfy. It, it, the courts are regularly in the practice, it struck me as I looked at these cases, of taking judicial notice of the satisfaction of this requirement. It's almost always the case that the sale of an interest in property that you cannot then dispose of, uh, or even if you can, the chilling effect of it being an undivided interest uh, it renders um, uh, the sale of the property or makes it makes it abundantly clear that uh, a trustee is going to derive more from the sale of the entire property than of the undivided interest. Um, courts don't really give very much time or energy to this issue. Um, next slide. Michael, can I ask you a question on uh, prong three? The property is subject to a mortgage greater than its value then why would a court approve uh, a forced sale under 363 where the only, um, the only uh, entity uh, benefiting from it is the mortgagee, mor mortgagee and there's no benefit to the estate? So we'll get to that in the next slide, but it's a, it, it is the absolute right question to ask. Um, uh, actually, it's the slide after this slide, but uh, so let's put a hold on that. So uh, section 363H um, requires that um, the benefit to the estate outweigh the detriment to the non-debtor. Uh, so um, let's talk first about procedural considerations. Um, and, and I've given you a case on this one. Uh, the, 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 uh, the showings here involve kind of a, a back and forth of burdens. Uh, the trustee has the initial burden to show that the sale will benefit the estate. If the trustee does that, then it is the, uh, the defendant, the non-debtor co-owner's burden to show detriment. And then if that burden is met, it's the trustee's burden, once again, to show that the benefit outweighs the detriment. Um, and an important note here, uh, again, citing Desmond via Drissi, as well as another Massachusetts case, that, of course, the detriment can be economic harm, but it can also be psychological, emotional, physical harm to the defendant or his or her family that results from the basically being dispossessed or evicted from a home or other property. Next slide. So... Here's some uh, fact patterns that I came across, uh, you know, where um, uh, there would be either there would the, the benefits would outweigh the detriments or vice versa. So the detriments uh, outweigh the benefit when there's no benefit to the estate. In other words, when the property, it, when the <clears throat> debtor's interest in the property is exempt, the trustee is not going to be permitted to sell it. I mean, and I really derived this rule from a case dealing with the, the converse, which is it was a sale of 
uh, a property that wasn't the debtor's primary residence. So there was no, even though it was owned uh, jointly um, by the debtor and uh, the debtor's spouse, there was no exemption. It may have been the debtor and the debtor's daughter, actually, in that case. Um, uh, the next area, again, is where the property is underwater. And so there's no meaningful benefit to the estate. That's a 363H2, uh, H1 issue, as well as an H3 issue. Um, another instance where the detriment outweighs the benefit is where the defendant provides real and compelling evidence of psychological harm. Um, and here, it's, it's really not enough to simply say, um, this is causing me great pain and anxiety and inconvenience. Uh, the cases I found where this argument worked were cases where there was proof or at least expert testimony uh, that this would cause that that being evicted from from one's home would cause significant emotional harm. In one case, it was a person who was mentally incompetent, where her guardian testified as to the harm that would be caused. Another case, um, the de the defendant, the non debtor put on the debtor's psychologist or psychiatrist, the non-debtor psychiatrist to talk about the fact that this person suffered from depression and the impact that um, the sale and an eviction would have on this person. Uh, another case that I found where the detriment uh, out was, what that contributed to the denial of a sale was where the non-debtor party contributed to uh, most or all of your equity in the home. Uh, and, uh, and then also another situation is whether there's a real sale. Um, and as Laurel said, bankruptcy courts are not in the, uh, in, the, in the business of authorizing sales of property that aren't real sales. And so it doesn't make any sense for a trustee to say, I'd like to sell this property, but I wanna get authorization beforehand to sell it free and clear of the um, non-debtor co-owner's interest. Uh, if, if this is just a prelude to a potential sale, at least the McCoy court said it won't work. So let's go to the next slide. Um, the, so this, this, go, this, this first uh, example goes to Laurel's question. Uh, in the Adrisi case, Desmond V. Adrisi, um, the, tr the trustee uh, and the, uh, I believe the creditors committee um, negotiated a carve out for the benefit, uh, or actually the, I'm sorry, the trustee and the secured creditor negotiated a carve out for the benefit of the estate from the proceeds of the sale uh, in order to, to show that there would in fact be a benefit and to sell property free and clear of a co-tenant's interest uh, my battery is running low, but hopefully I'll be okay with this, um, uh, to show that there would be, in fact, a benefit. Um, the, in that case, the defendant said, well, you can do that, but you have to, you, that, what you're basically doing is depriving me of my equity in the property. Uh, and I would, you know, frankly, I'm going to need 50% of the carve out if this is gonna be sold free and clear of my co-owner's rights. Uh, and in that case, um, the bankruptcy court said, that argument doesn't work. Uh, under SPM and its progeny, 
The trust, the secured creditor is free to do with its money whatever it wants to do. And if the secured creditor wants to leave behind some money for the benefit of creditors generally, that does not become the co-owner's money. That simply becomes the estate money. But you can see that the use of that provision of, of a carve out gets you over the problems of 363H sales of underwater property. And it worked in that case. So Laurel, that answers your question. Um, I saw another case um, where um, the court in approving a a sale of a co-owner's interest in the property, uh, uh, leaned on section 363I, which I'm gonna talk about in a moment. Um, and they basically said, look, the debtor's got a right of first refusal. So, you know, whatever problems there are here can be cured if the debtor, if, I'm sorry, the non-debtor has a right of first refusal. If the non-debtor simply puts together the funds needed to purchase the interest of the debtor and retain ownership of the property. Is that really, in, my question is, is that a consideration to be weighed when weighing detriments and benefits? I really don't think so. I think section 363I is a separate right, but the non-debtor shouldn't be forced into exercising that right of first refusal if the detriments outweigh the benefits in the first place. So last comment I I wanna make is just to note section 363I, if you represent the non-debtor, it is, uh, the right of a non-debtor to exercise a right of first refusal when the debtor, when the trustee sells property subject to the co-owner's interest. And I think it's important to note here that outside of the world of bankruptcy, um, sellers hate rights of first refusal. They have a chilling impact on the value of, uh, of, of property being sold simply because um, the the stalking horse or the buyer doesn't wanna be put in a position where they're gonna do the work, due diligence investigations, title reports, surveys, et cetera, and then end up losing the property um, because somebody else has a right to match. Uh, And so um, if you're representing a non-debtor co-owner, just remember that, Finding the financing to exercise your rights under 363I may be your best course of action altogether because you may be buying that property at a significant discount to the market, which may in turn allow you to resell the property and put a whole bunch of money in your pocket that you didn't have before. Uh, So again, it's just important to remember what you can accomplish under section 363I. Next slide. So here's my conclusory slide, which uh, I'm not sure tells you anything other than uh, be careful to be conversant both in in 363F and as applicable 363H, but understand also the underlying elements of the real estate transactional documents and the real estate sale, and, and in particular, how you can use 363F um, uh, uh, into to sell free and clear. Um, so that's um, that's the end of my presentation. And thank you for sorry for running as long as I did, but thank you for your attention. 
Um, I see there's one question, which is, uh, do, I do we think solar, solar panels on a house would invoke the final prong? I'm not sure if uh, that's the final prong of, I assume that's 363H, uh, the final prong of 363H, but I'm not sure. Um, Maybe Kate, if you can uh, uh, if you can help us with a follow up question, uh, uh, I, I'm 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 not getting how solar panels. Um, ah, property engaged in the production of electricity. Um, that is a, a very interesting question. I don't know the answer, but it may depend. It may depend on the nature of the solar panels. Um, there are three different ways you can buy solar panels, right? You can buy them. They belong to you. And you're generating electricity for yourself. You can lease them. I believe they belong to you. And you're generating electricity for yourself. Or, as I have done on my own home, you can simply make your roof available to... A, a solar energy company to install their panels. They draw the power from your panels and they sell it back to you for a substantially discounted rate. You're neither leasing nor owning the panels. And I think there's an argument that could be made that, uh, that the third model uh, would bring you within the fourth prong of 363H. I don't, um, uh, I, don't, uh, I don't have a case. It'd be an interesting case to look at. But I do think if you're representing the non-debtor co-owner and there's solar panels, you ought to consider making the argument. Hope that helps. Uh, there are other questions. Uh, oh, those are all Kate's questions. All right, so are there any other questions? that we haven't answered, seeing none, I'm gonna turn it back over to He's not with us anymore, so I'm gonna close this out. On behalf of the Boston Bar Association, thanks to all of our participants for participating. I hope we've made it uh, educational and, uh, and helpful, uh, and um, you know, hope to see you at the next Boston Bar Association presentation.